Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10. We have much to cover here this morning. And so I just want to remind you briefly of the context from which our scripture verse is this morning so we can begin unpacking our verse. You will remember from last week what the author of Hebrews knows and that, that there are many who are sitting in the congregation who have professed Christ but are not yet all in. They've made a profession, but they have not. They're, they're, at the, they're at the gate, if you will, of the narrow gate to go into salvation, but their toes are right up to the line, but they will not go all the way in. Something is holding them back. And he wants them to know that it's decision time. He wants them to know that you cannot keep straddling the fence. He wants them to know that there's a, a fork in the road coming. You're going to have to decide which way you're going to go. Are you going to go to the left or to the right? Every week they were coming to church. Every week they were listening to the gospel message. Every week they were sitting under new covenant preaching. And some had even made professions of faith, but they were not all in. And so verses 19 through 25 in chapter 10 are an encouragement to those who are on the fence. It's an encouragement to those who have not yet, who've made professions of faith, but are not yet all in. He wants them to show, he wants to show them, this is what a true believer looks like. These are the things the true believer does. And he wants to invite them, encourage them. Be all in. Be all in. Be all in faith, as we looked at last week, and be all in in hope, as we're going to look at today. So remember uh, the text that Brandon I read for us this morning, again, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place blood, by the blood of Jesus, and again, this is review, we have confidence to enter into the holy place. Confidence is one of those defining characteristics of true saving faith. You would never commit your life to something. Uh, you would never commit your life to Jesus unless you truly believe that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. In other words, you believe that Jesus is God and that his promises are true. You would never commit your life to him if you did not believe that, if you were not confident in that truth. So in verse 19, the author is talking about having confident access to God for those who are truly saved, for those that are all in. He references the holy place here, doesn't he? Come on into the holy place. Remember, this is a... An allusion again back to what he's been talking about all in chapter 7 and 8 and 9, which is only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. But now through the shed blood of Jesus, if you are a true believer, if you are all in, you have been granted access into the throne room of God. Every time you close your eyes in prayer, you are immediately into the presence of God. He said, this this is something that we could never even dream of. We've never been into the holy. We've never been into the holy of holies. We've never even been into the holy place. We were never allowed. There were curtains. There were veils. Only the priest could go this far. And only the high priest once a year could go into the holy of holies. But now, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, my friends, 
If you are all in, if you are truly saved, you have been granted access to God 24-7 into the very throne room of God every time you bow your head in prayer. We take that for granted because it's, it's such a, 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 a common thing. We, we talk about it all the time in the church. But for those who were listening to this, they had never heard of such a thing. What do you mean I could go into the presence of God? Because all through the Old Testament it was, don't draw near. Stay back. You have not been consecrated. Your sins have not been atoned for. You need to do this, this, and this to even think about having a representative come in to my presence. Then his argument is as follows. Therefore, brethren, since you have this confidence, it's time to act. It's time to be all in. It's time to move. It's time to get off the fence. Then verse 20. By a new and living way, he says, we've had granted this access, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have confidence that Christ inaugurated us through the veil. That veil, remember, is symbolic of Christ's flesh or his sinless human body. It was through the atoning work of Christ, remember, that we have access into the very presence of God. Direct access for all true believers was now available, and they were to come not in fear and trembling, but with boldness and with confidence in what Christ had done for them. Verse 21, we have confidence in our great high priest. That word great implies sovereignty. We have the privilege of being God's people in Christ as our sovereign Lord if we are all in in faith. And so it's on the basis of this that there's a new way that God has uh, to have access to God that's been opened by the death of Christ. We can now go in with confidence because of what Jesus has accomplished through his new and living way. Remember, we talked about that. New and living way refers to his death, right, and resurrection. And Christ goes in with us, and then he takes his place there, seated at the right hand of the Father. And that, because of those things, verse 22 tells us, Here's what should be happening then. Because of what Christ has done, and because of your faith, because of your profession of faith, if it is genuine, if it is true, if you'll step across that narrow gate and go all the way in, that the way that Christ has provided for you, he says, let us draw near. Get in there. Go all the way. Again, what a startling contrast that was to God's people who were told in the Old Testament, stay away, stay away. Remember, we looked at Exodus 19. Don't even set your foot on the edge of that mountain or you shall surely, what, die. Don't even think about it. Don't even let your animals get on that mountain when my presence is there. And now he says, because of the new covenant, because what Christ has done, come on in. There's nothing else that needs to be done for you to be granted access to God. All you need to do is have faith in God and his promises through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, come on in. Secondly, being all in commands us to draw near with a sincere heart and a full assurance. He says, when you go in, make sure you're sincere about it. Make sure that word sincere heart means literally a true heart. It refers to a heart without divided loyalties. It's a true heart, means true in God's sight, 
not in what you think other people are seeing, but true in God's sight. There's no hypocrisy. There's no trying to put on a good front for others. There's no trying to hide your sin and act like you're all in, but you're not really in. He says, if you're going to go all in, if you're going to go all the way to Christ, do it with a sincere heart. No hypocrisy. Quit pretending that you're all in when you're really not. No ulterior motives. And then he says, not only do it with a sincere heart, but remember, do it with a full assurance of faith. That's what it means to have a sincere heart. It's a sincere heart anchored upon the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. It means that you know in your heart, without any reservation, the truth of the gospel and what Jesus is. And that Jesus is not some way or a way, but he is the only way. What is the result of drawing near to the Lord and being all in? Being all in results in a clean heart and a pure conscience. That's what we looked at last week. So you come all in by faith, and God gives you a clean heart, clean conscience. Once you're all in, you realize you've come with a conscience, which realize that you've been declared not guilty by God, not because of your special merit, my friends, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Because your faith in what Christ has accomplished for you. You come in with a conscience that understands that what justification by grace through faith means. It doesn't mean that you're not guilty. It means you've been declared not guilty. It's a legal term. It's a forensic term. You've been declared not guilty. Come in with a conscience that knows what it means that God has pronounced over you in all your sins. Therefore, if you are in Christ Jesus, what? Therefore, there is no condemnation. That brings us then to verse 23. He says, not only do you draw near with faith, but look at verse 23. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All right, so point number one in your notes. All in faith means we hold fast to our confession of hope. All in faith means we hold fast to our confession of hope. This is the author's second evangelistic appeal to these professing believers. First he said, this is what you should be doing. Because this is what true believers do. You draw near. Secondly, you hold fast. You hold fast. Because of what Christ has done, we're to draw near to him. And then when we draw near to him, we're to hold fast together. All of us holding fast. He's saying, you who are not all in, you who have not come all the way in, to those whose toes are on the edge of the narrow gate, come all the way in, and then once you go all the way in, hang on. Hold fast. Don't let go. When we have true saving faith, my friends, we both draw near to him and we hold fast. That word hold fast means to hold on with a firm grip. It means to retain something with all your might or to claim something as your own. It does not apply like a casual toss of the something insignificant to something. It means take this, this precious thing, and hang on to it with all of your might. Don't ever let it go. 
take possession of something extremely valuable and never, ever let go of your grip. My friends, that's what saving faith looks like. We cling to the truth of our salvation, this hope we have in Christ, and we cling to it, we hang on to it with every fiber in our body. We hold that truth dear in our hearts and in our mind and our body and our souls. And this word is in the present tense, which means we continue to hang on. We continue to hold fast. This is not something we do once and forget about it. Instead, we seize it and continue to hold it. Secondly, notice here that word confession. That word confession, homologia, means an open acknowledgement or a public testimony of a deeply held belief. That noun, confession, is used three times in the book of Hebrews, and each time that it's used, here are the objects of our confession according to the book of Hebrews. Jesus, faith, hope. Jesus, faith, hope. What does that mean? It means that you're willing to confess publicly with your mouth that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It means that you're willing to publicly declare I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. It means that I will openly, unashamedly profess Jesus Christ at every opportunity in front of my friends, in front of my families, in front of strangers, in front of co-workers, that I will profess Jesus Christ no matter what. That's what true saving faith looks like. We draw near having access to God because of what Christ has done. And then we hold fast to our saving faith together with fellow believers. And we confess what? We confess, the text tells us, the object of our hope. You should have the word hope there in your translation. If your text has faith, it should be hope there, okay? The word is elpis, which means hope, not faith. Now, there's a strong connection between faith and hope, which we're going to see in chapter 11. A strong connection between faith and hope. Faith and hope. Hope. What is hope? Hope is the reasonable and confident expectation of a future event. It's the reasonable and confident expectation of a future event. It's not a wish. Like, I wish my Detroit Lions would win the Super Bowl, okay? That's neither reasonable or not a confident expectation, okay? That's probably not going to happen. But this is different. Hope is different than a wish. Hope is also faith directed towards future promises. What is our hope, beloved, as believers? We have a hope that we have eternal life. We have a hope that we have an inheritance in Christ. We have a hope of the glory of Christ. We have a hope that Jesus is preparing a place for us and that he is coming again. And we have a confident and realist, realistic expectation that those things will happen. That's called hope. Paul put it this way in Colossians 1.27. God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He said again in Titus 2.13, 
We were to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's that word hope again. This realistic, confident expectation of a future event. Hope refers to the future hope of our salvation. So point number one again, all in faith, means we hold fast to our confession of hope. Who is our confession of hope? The Lord Jesus Christ is our confession of hope. We, it's, we hold to that hope of the salvation we have through him, the life we have in him, and the glories we will receive from him in eternity. That's what hope means. Point number two in your notes. All in hope means we hold fast without wavering. We hold fast without wavering. These Christians that he's talking to have confessed Christ to be their hope of salvation. And they're surrounded by people who want to persecute them. And they're surrounded by Jewish friends who are protected by law in the Roman society from persecution. But because they've walked away from Judaism, they're not under that protection. And so they're getting persecuted from their Jewish friends and family and community and the Romans and the Gentiles. And so they're thinking, well, you know, I could still have my relationship with God if I just go back to Judaism. I wouldn't be persecuted as a Christian. That would be good, wouldn't it? They were being tempted to stop believing that God's promises for them were secure. They were being tempted to walk away from the whole thing. And in the midst of it, the author of Hebrews is saying to them, don't do it. Don't walk away from your faith. Don't abandon your profession of faith. Don't waver. Don't give in. Don't, don't give up. Hold fast your confession without wavering. Don't waver in that confession of that hope because it is the only hope you have. Don't fail to believe the promises. He's saying, don't be like the generation before that left Egypt. They were barely out of Egypt when they ran into their first little trial. And what did they say? We want to go back. We want to go, we want to go back. We'll forsake our redemption so we can go back into bondage under Egypt. And that was just the first trial. Remember, this is a generation that had saw the Red Sea parted. And they saw a pillar of cloud by day. A tornado, if you will, directing their path by day. And a pillar of fire by night. They had seen the plagues. They had seen God's hand moving. That generation is the generation that said, Ooh, we've had a trial. We need to go back. He's pleading with them here. Don't waver in your profession of faith, but instead prove the genuineness of your profession by never letting go. That word wavering means unyielding, without giving up, standing your ground, never letting go of your grip. You know, I get a vivid picture of this every time my grandchildren decide they both want the same toy at the same time. You want to see, you want to see what unwavering looks like? Get this living picture every time we're together. Talk about unyielding. Talk about standing firm. Talk about never letting go of your grip. That's a very clear picture of that word. My friends, the one who has true saving faith has a faith and a hope 
that they refuse to relinquish no matter what happens. That's not always an easy thing to do in the Christian life, is it? Let's be honest. That goes right against the grain of popular culture today. Because today we're constantly being told to put our hopes in life. To ask our Father to shower us with treasure now. To demand our inheritance, as it were, now for this world today. To treat all hardships as some sort of abomination, as if we're somehow supposed to be exempt from any trials in our lives. To consider all pain as an unwelcome intruder into our lives. To regard all difficulty as being the product of a weak faith that hasn't really learned how to trust God. That's the message of today, isn't it? The whole of the notion of putting our hopes in what lies ahead or in the life to come or in the world to come, in a Savior we cannot see but who we are assured is coming back, to many people that just seems ludicrous. How in the world are we going to preach that? Doesn't sound like a very easy message to market, does it? It's not a message that's going to bring in the crowds. Yet this is the message we have been given, my friends. That's the message. It's, a, it's the very thing the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do. It's the thing that's being held out there as the mark of a true and genuine faith. To hold onto your profession, to hold fast to your confession without wavering. To continue to believe the promises of God even when you cannot see them. When I was selling shoes for a living, we ran an ad for a pair of shoes that according to the ad, you could put them on and it was just like walking on air. I think sometimes people imagine the Christian life is like that. That you come to faith, and then you're blessed immediately, and then the rest of your life, you're just kind of walking on air. No trials, no suffering for me. I'm a Christian. There's a reason the Lord does not talk about a flight of faith. Nor does he talk about a tour of faith, but he talks about a walk of faith. The temptation to quit the journey comes to everybody. Some have been tempted to just give up the whole Christian life and be done with it. My friends, if we were being honest, there's not a true believer in her who's never had doubts. How do I know that? Well, Moses had doubts. Abraham had doubts. David had doubts. Peter had doubts. Thomas certainly had doubts. The Bible doesn't hide those things from us. They say, hey, there's going to be times you're going to be tempted. There's going to be times you're going to be tempted to not, to walk away, to be tempted not to trust. When are those times the hardest? Those times when you're in prolonged sickness. Those times of enduring pain. Those times of marital tensions. Those times of terrible bosses and constantly fighting children and mounting financial concerns or the untimely death of a loved one. We have all have been tempted to have doubts, especially when times are hard. But here in our text is the key, my friends. Hold fast. Hold fast to your confession of hope. How? Without wavering. Cling to it. 
Your hope in Christ, your faith in God and his promises need to outlast your trials. When you walk and talk with godly men and women who have been enduring and suffering, who have endured persecution, who have endured prolonged and protect, protracted illness and pain for years and years and years, and you ask them how did they do it, they will tell you, my hope in Christ, my faith in God and his promises outlasted my temptation to waver. That's a lot of the Christian life, my friends. You just dig in your fingernails and you hang on for all that it's worth. You don't give up. You don't stop believing. You don't stop believing those promises. And then the author of Hebrews is telling them, this is what it looks like to be all in in faith. This is what it looks like to be all in in hope, in the object of your hope. In the hope of your salvation, Jesus Christ your Lord, hang on. Don't waver. Don't let go. So all in faith means we hold fast to our confession of hope. Who's our confession of hope? The Lord Jesus Christ. And the salvation we have in him. The life we have in him. And the promises of the inheritance we'll receive from him. Secondly, all in faith means we hold fast without wavering. We cling to our hope in Jesus Christ with an iron grip. We trust in him and his promises to carry us through whatever the trial that we are facing. We may be tempted to have doubts, but we will never let go of our grip. Why do we do that? Point number three. Our all in hope is grounded in the promises of our faithful God. Our faithful God. All in hope is grounded in the promises of our faithful God. Notice that verse here at the end of verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is what? He is faithful. He is faithful. That's your motivation. Why should I keep on? Why should I hold on? Why should I... Not start, why should I not stop believing? Why should I continue to trust? Because the one who made the promise to you is faithful. It's the Heavenly Father, and he made these promises to you in Christ before the world began. See in Hebrews 13. In eternity past, God made a new covenant with his Son, so that all who are truly saved, who are all in, who have placed their trust in Jesus and his atoning work of redemption, that if you trust him, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't promise, my friends, that you'll be exempt from trials. He promises he'll never leave you in the midst of them. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 comes to mind, doesn't it? No temptation or trial, same word, no temptation or trial has overcome you, but such is what? Common to man. Do you think your trials, you're the only person in human history that's ever dealt with discomfort or an enduring illness or an enduring pain? No. First Corinthians 10, 30. What you're going through, others have went through before you. But what? Our God is faithful. He will not give you more than what you can handle. And what? He will always provide a way out. Do we ever think, when we're going through the midst of a trial, do we ever think of Romans 8.28, Romans 
That God causes all things for good. For who? To those who love God. Do we ever think that the trial that you're going through, that the pain that you're going through, that the loss that you've just suffered is God's way of conforming you more and more into the image of his son? Or do we just think, woe is me. Don't know if I could do this another day. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, listen, our God is faithful. You may be going through a difficult time, but what you're going through is not any different than what others have went through before. And God was faithful to them, and he'll be faithful to you as well. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never fail you. He will forgive you. He will accept you. He will bring you home. Don't stop believing the promise. You see, it's so easy sometimes to doubt that God might be faithful to us. And that's because of our lack of faith. Thank God our salvation is not dependent on our faithfulness. Who's, I mean, our assurance is based on what? On his faithfulness, not ours. I'd be in deep waters if it was just me. You know, even when we're struggling with our faith, we know about our God to know enough that he's never going to break his promise to his son. Never going to happen. He is faithful. And that, his son will never let you go. So the author of Hebrews says, listen, draw near, hang on, because God has made a promise and God is faithful. The source of our hope is him. That's why Paul said a person without Christ had no hope in this world. If your hope in this world is your financial security, your hope in this world is your, your, the medicine that you're taking, whatever trial you're facing, my friends, whatever obstacle seems too big for you to hurdle, remember that God is faithful. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lest we forget, Noah fell down many times in the ark, but he never fell out of the ark. When God gives you saving faith, it is so you will go all the way in. He doesn't give you partial saving faith. He gives you the faith you need to go all the way. So many people are just putting one foot in front of the other as they've placed their hope in all kinds of things. They've placed their faith in wealth and family and medicine and doctors and government in themselves. But a true believer, our hope is in Christ. Turn back just a page here as we close to Hebrews chapter 6. I just want you to remind you of a text we covered long ago. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within where? The veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Our hope, my friends, is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. It's anchored at the right hand of God. It's so substantial and real that he calls it an anchor. Why would he use that illustration? Because no ancient or modern sailor, for that matter, 
who knows what can happen during an ocean voyage would ever go into a ship, go out to sea without an anchor. Not one. Even today, even if this ship was the greatest and most modern vessel afloat, they all still have anchors. Every sailor knows there are situations which might arise when the hope of the ship and all aboard will depend on the captain, not on the captain, not on the crew, not on the engines, not on the technology, not on the compass, not on the rudder, but the anchor. When all else fails, there's hope in the anchor. And here's what the author's saying. Let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. Because he who made that promise to you is faithful. He is your anchor. And as the storm winds gather, and as our ship of life bobs all around like a cork in the ocean, as we sail through all life's troubles, we must hang on to this confession of our hope without wavering. For our hope is anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, in who he and all that he has done. Beloved, hold fast to your confession of hope. I know many of you are going through serious trials. Some of you have been through them recently. Some are you in the beginning. Some are in the middle of them. But the author of Hebrews reminds us, hold Fast. Grab it tight and never let it go. One of the proofs of the genuineness of your salvation is that you never let it go. You may be tempted to doubt. You may be tempted to let it go. The evil one may be working overtime on you, but never, ever let it go. Because he is faithful. And that's what true believers do. They hold fast, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of great persecution, even in the midst of great suffering. They trust in Christ, the anchor of their souls. I'm going to ask the men to come up now.